word of the gospel. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, this scene in the life of the Lord Jesus is, is one that always kicks off the season of Lent, regardless of the lectionary year. So that means that as a church like ours that intentionally follows the church calendar, there is obviously going to be texts that we will repeat on a regular basis. But at the same time, I have long been a proponent, and I I blame you guys for discipling me into this, right? (laughs) I have long been a proponent of purposeful repetition, right? And as you see in the way that our bulletins are structured for the season of Lent, that really is kind of how these bulletins have been structured for the season now, right? There will be some purposeful repetition. And so because we see in Scripture how, and the reason I'm, I'm a proponent of purposeful repetition is because we see in the Scriptures how the Lord God has set the seasons in motion and how he has set the life of his chosen people in motion in such a way as to constantly familiarize ourselves and remind us of what life under his covenant is supposed to look like and who he is. And so there is a very specific reason as to why we consider the temptation of the Lord Jesus at the beginning of Lent every single year. It's because within this scene, Jesus gives us a moment-by-moment example that he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And a high priest that has been tempted in every single way that we are tempted Yet, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, he remains without sin. And so backing up just a couple of weeks, only for the sake of running into this, as we did in Sunday school this morning. Through the season of Epiphany, we were constantly hitting on a theme of identifying in Christ. And so we discussed through Epiphany how, as believers, we have been called to kingdom righteousness by identifying ourselves with Jesus in our lives and in the motives of our hearts, And in our actions, because he has identified with us in his incarnation and in his baptism. And so now that we're transitioning into Lent, 
Christ is still calling us to identify himself, but this time, not only does he call us to kingdom righteousness, but he's calling us to a kingdom righteousness that identifies with him in his suffering. And so if there was to be a key text assigned for the season of Lent, in my opinion, it would be Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul tells the Philippians that we may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And the reason I think this is because I think it perfectly describes the purpose of the season of Lent. And so as we mentioned a few days ago on Ash Wednesday when we began this season, Lent is a season that we practice. It's a season that we observe. It's not a season that we celebrate. Because in Lent, we enter into the wilderness with Christ, and we take on the practices of the spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer and contemplation, both of Scripture and of the spiritual life, as well as acts of service. And we do so in a more concentrated and, frankly, a more focused way during the season of Lent. So for those who are here or listening that have observed Lent for years, as well as for those that are still just trying to figure out whether or not the practice of Lent is even biblical, because this scene is so familiar, I just want to look at verse number one today. Because, and I will read more than that as we go today, but I want to do this because I believe it shows us not only the implications upon the temptation of Christ that follows in this scene, but also implications for our Lenten observance. So, the reason, the other reason I want to do this is because verse 1 lays out for us basically the thesis for this scene, or what to expect in this passage. And each element that Matthew mentions here stresses to us certain key aspects of the season of Lent. So if you will, bear with me, I'm going to reread this verse a lot this morning. Uh, But we have it in front of us, so it won't be that difficult, right? So let's reread it again. So the first element to consider, as we see here, is this. Jesus is being led up by the Holy Spirit. So listen again. Matthew says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now often, I have heard this element of being led up by the Spirit. I have heard it both preached and taught that what the Spirit is doing is gently and lovingly leading Jesus like a guide or a close friend into the wilderness. Now, to be perfectly frank, I see that, right? To be perfectly frank, I have done this myself. And and the reason I know I have is because I went back to my notes from last year just to see how I proclaim this, because we were in Luke 4, which is almost the exact same text, except a few things are kind of switched around. And I did this exact same thing. So we can rightly assume that this might be the case, but I don't think it is the whole case. Because the Greek word that Matthew uses here suggests that something else is going on, or at least something more is going on. And it is something that I have not really paid that close attention to until this week when I was preparing for today. So the word that Matthew uses here is the word anago, which means because I need to define this for you, right? Which means to lead up or to bring up, as we read here in our bulletins and in our translations that we have. But anago can also mean something like to put out to sea or to set sail, suggesting something more along the lines of a journey or a sojourn. Now, This presents us, I think, with a very interesting aspect to consider 
as it relates to the temptation of the Lord. So to camp out here for a minute, let's, let's do some context setting. So in Sunday school, if you've been able to join us, you know this. If you haven't, then here's the context. We have been making our way through Isaiah since the beginning of the year, right? Uh, Walton has been teaching, and, and Connor has uh, taught the last couple of weeks while Walton was out of town. But part of Isaiah's theme that, that Connor reminded us of as he was filling in is that there is a promise in Isaiah of a new exodus that is found in Christ. And so for an exodus to occur in the biblical sense, there must be a prophet that is raised up. And this prophet must be raised up in order to lead God's covenant nation into the sojourn of an exodus through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 18 as he is basically giving his farewell sermon before he dies. He says this, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and it is to him that you shall listen. And so Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, right? He makes a connection here and he writes this. He says, Moses, when Moses was led up by God to Mount Sinai, when God was about to employ him as his agent, he was led up to Mount Sinai. And he was withdrawn from the view of the people. In the same way, Calvin says, Christ was led up and he withdrew in order that he might come forth from the wilderness as an ambassador of God sent from heaven. So Matthew's use of this word, anago, and God working out the temptation of Christ in this way by the Spirit leading him up into the wilderness, these are not incidental details. This is very important. And so notice, now let's start to make this connection. If we interpret leading up as setting sail or as putting out to sea, then Jesus' journey, his sojourn in the wilderness, accomplishes two very important tasks. First, it tells us that Jesus is the new and better Israel, whom God has raised up out of Egypt. But it also tells us that Jesus is the new and the better Moses, whom God has raised up in order to redeem God's covenant nation and to lead them into a new and a better exodus through the Red Sea of a better baptism of both water and the Spirit, and then into the wilderness of the world. That's one thing this tells us. But secondly, it also tells us that Jesus' victory in the wilderness has redeemed the failure of Israel in their journey in the wilderness. Meaning, for us, that Jesus, as the new and better Moses, and the new and better Israel has been called out of Egypt and has been sent into the wilderness. And then this new and better Moses and better Israel found in Christ the Lord empowers his covenant nation of Israel, us, the church, with that same spirit so that we might also be victorious in our temptations in the wilderness, just as he was victorious in his. So speaking to this truth, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, God prepares his people for temptation, and therefore the Holy Spirit's testimony to our adoption as sons is what furnishes us with every answer to all of the temptations of the enemy. So Christ has identified with his people fully and completely, even in his temptations. 
Yet again, he remains without sin. And he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be victorious. And so therefore, we identify with him as we are led up by the same Spirit in order to be victorious when we are tempted. The second element in this verse is that Christ, as we read here, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So again, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Kind of see where we're going this morning, right? But in this case now, as he is led up into the wilderness, this wilderness that Jesus was led up into is the Judean wilderness, right? He's not led into some, you know, mystical, uh, non-existent place. He was led to an actual location in, in the Judean area. Now, this is an area that's just west of the Dead Sea. So if you're looking at a map of, of Israel and Palestine, you know exactly where you can point. This is a very dry and a rocky place most of the year. Water is very scarce, and it's barren for most of the year. If you were to pull up photographs on the Internet like I did just for the sake of doing it, right, um, it would look a lot like the photographs that we have been getting back from Mars over the last couple of decades. It is just a, it's a rocky and barren place. Other than the sky being red, it is a dead-looking place, right? So it is a wilderness. It's barren. It's dry. It's craggy. It's rocky. There are caves there, right? But as with all things in Scripture, there is also a multi-layered meaning for this point and for leading Jesus into the wilderness because... Throughout Scripture, the wilderness signifies many things. I'm going to give you three. So first, the wilderness is considered to be a place where the demonic dwells. In Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 34, which I'm going to read a verse from each in a moment. In both of those chapters, Isaiah mentions multiple judgments upon the nations and upon Babylon. And in those judgments, we read that God lays waste to the land, and he leaves it a desolation, and he leaves it abandoned. And because the land becomes abandoned, it becomes a place where thorns and where weeds and where thickets start to grow, right? I mean, this is what happens the moment you start to neglect your yard, everything grows up, right? But the land, because it is desolate, and it has been abandoned, it is also a place where blood starts to flow freely. So this is just an example of how harsh the abandonment is. In Isaiah 34, verse 3, God writes this, or Isaiah writes this, uh, and God proclaims, he says, they're slain or they're slaughtered, they will be cast out, and the stench of their corpses will rise, and the mountains shall flow with their blood. This sounds like a horror movie to me, right? This is a horrible desolation. But because of this desolation and abandonment, and this happens, we see this anywhere we abandon any kind of land, the wilderness becomes a place where the demonic starts to dwell because wild animals start to move in. And so Isaiah uses wild animals as a metaphor for the demonic. In Isaiah chapter 13, in verse 21, he writes this. He says, But the wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. And there, owls, some translations randomly read ostriches, and I don't know why, but there, owls or ostriches will dwell. But also there, wild goats will dwell. And then in chapter 34, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 14, Isaiah 
writes this. He says, And wild animals shall meet hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. So we could talk all day about the symbolism of wild animals and the demonic, but let's, let's make this connection here. So while Isaiah, he does promise a new exodus that's found in Christ, the exodus in the Old Testament immediately is followed by a time of temptation and journeying and sojourning in the wilderness. In Scripture, the wilderness is a place where the demonic powers dwell because, and it becomes a battleground and the front lines of spiritual warfare. So as a season... Lent reminds us of our journey in the wilderness. Lent becomes somewhat of our wilderness journey every year. And it is a season where we take up the spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer and contemplation in order to identify with Christ more intensely in his suffering. And when we do so, because we are in the wilderness, we are inevitably placed on the front lines of the conflict in the heavenlies. Because the wilderness is a battleground. It is a war zone. That's one. Here's another one. The wilderness in Scripture is also considered to be a place of testing throughout Scripture. Now, we know this very specifically. If we were to just read the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we know that, that Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? But that same number 40 comes up here in our text. Again, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as any of us would be if we had not eaten in 40 days. So the number 40 is the biblical number for testing. Most of us know this, but just consider Noah was in the ark, or he and his family were on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jonah prophesied to Nineveh for 40 days. Ezekiel laid on his side for 40 days to symbolize the sin of Judah. God has clearly designated the number 40 as a period of time for testing. So again, the season of Lent is a 40-day season, and it reminds us of our journey in the wilderness. And it is a season where we identify with Christ and his suffering for 40 days. And so where, like Christ in the wilderness, we are being tested, not only in our faithfulness to the disciplines, but also in our faithfulness to Christ himself. But then interestingly, the final one is that the wilderness is also considered to be a place of God's comfort. Now, this one seems a little out of place with the other two, right? If it's a place where the demonic dwells and a place of testing, then how can it also be a place of God's comfort? But So this is an important quality to understand as we begin this season of Lent. So listen again. The first two verses, we read, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. But then after he's tempted, skip all the way down to the final sentence, we read this. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The wilderness is a place of God's comfort and nourishment. Moses, after killing the Egyptian and fleeing into the wilderness, he dwelt there for 40 years before God commissioned him to return to Egypt and to lead his people out of slavery. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, is fleeing from Jezebel, 
who was in a murderous rage. And God provides him with food to strengthen him for a 40-day fast in the wilderness as he makes his way to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. In Revelation 12, the woman described, rightly understood, I think, to be the church, flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God in order to be nourished and to be protected and to escape the dragon that's seeking after her. So one more time, and then we'll move on to the final quality here. Lent reminds us of our journey in the wilderness. Lent becomes our wilderness sojourn. And it is a season where not only are we placed on the front lines of spiritual warfare, and not only are we tested in faithfulness, but Lent is also a season where God nourishes us and he comforts us, especially as we take up his prescribed disciplines not only to identify with Christ and his suffering, but even more so because Lent leads to Easter to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So the final element to consider in this verse is this. Again, we read, The Lord Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, we've already mentioned that the wilderness is a place where the demonic dwells, so it makes sense that Christ is going to encounter the devil in the wilderness. But these two components here, there are two components in this final clause that I think are worthy of us paying attention to. So we'll just take them in order. So the first one here is this idea of being tempted. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, for the sake of clarification, let's make sure that we are clear on this point before we go any farther. To be tempted is not a sin. But as we are being tempted, we are also being tested, which is also not a sin. Remember, in Scripture, the wilderness is a place of testing for God's people. And Christ has identified with his people in every way so that we can identify with him. Secondly, also for the sake of clarification, while God may test us, God does not tempt us. This is a key point to keep in mind. And nor did God tempt Christ in the wilderness. The devil did. The Spirit leads up Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, not by God. So again, the wilderness is a place of testing. And Christ has identified with us in every way, even in our testing and our temptation, so that we can identify with him. Now, James is very helpful with this clarification between testing and temptation. Right? And it's important to how we understand Jesus' testing in the wilderness. So James writes this in James chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt. John Owen, who is a British Puritan of the 17th century, defines temptation as a knife. He writes this, he says, a knife, a knife may be useful to cut meat or to cut the throat of a man. And so James continues in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. He then says, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. A knife can be useful to cut meat, but it can also cut your throat. So within the season of Lent, as we journey with Christ in the wilderness, and we identify with him more intensely in his suffering, it is inevitable that the enemy will attempt anything to distract us from being shaped more into the image of Christ. And while the wilderness is a place of temptation, it is also a place of testing. And in Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we are empowered, just as Christ has been, to resist the temptation and to endure the testing. Thirdly, and then we'll move on to the other qualifier in this last clause, testing and temptation are not to be endured alone. Remember, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but the Spirit did not abandon him in the wilderness. Because remember, while the wilderness is a place of testing and where the demonic dwells, it is also a place of God's protection and God's comfort. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 46, he says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in our time of need. Again, John Owen says this, he says, For even the best of saints, when left to themselves, will quickly appear to be nothing. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So Paul's statement speaks to the danger of temptation, but it also reminds us that every temptation has a way of escape. And more often than not, that way of escape is one another, which requires us to be vulnerable with one another, which we don't like. But it requires us to be vulnerable in order to endure temptation and to pass through the wilderness more faithful than when we entered into it. So I'll repeat yet again for emphasis, Christ has identified with us in every way so that we can identify with him, even in our testing and even in our temptations. And because Christ was not abandoned by the Spirit in the wilderness, we can rest assured that the same Spirit will not abandon us in our time of need, and we should not abandon one another. Which leads to that second component in this final clause. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Matthew's use of the term devil here is important because of what the name means. The name devil means slanderer, which I know is hard to understand in my Mississippi drawl, right? Slanderer. <laughs> I have to overemphasize the ERs, right? But notice that Matthew even refers to the devil as the tempter in this passage in the first three verses. So again, we'll reread. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, and you immediately pick up on the slander, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. The name tempter aptly describes the work of the enemy against all of us. And this component of being tempted by the slanderer and by the tempter was essential 
for Christ's ministry of atonement. Because in being tempted by the devil, Christ redeems the failure of Adam. While also, he begins his work of redeeming and justifying all who call upon his name for salvation. Paul speaks very clearly to this in Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. If, therefore, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as One trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ redeems the failure of Adam while beginning our redemption and resisting the tempter. So, as we we prepare to come to the table... Let's just reflect on how this passage, and particularly these, these elements in this verse, relate to our Lenten observance, as well as our own endurance through testing and temptation. Chrysostom, I love this quote, he writes this, speaking of this passage, he says, this is absolutely marvelous. He's really excited about this passage. <laughs> he says, this is marvelous. He says, all of this was for our instruction. And the Lord Jesus does whatever is necessary for our salvation by both acting and being acted upon. He submitted himself to being led up to wrestle against the devil. And then Chrysostom offers us a word of hope. He says, therefore, we should not be troubled if we too have to endure great temptation. And we should not treat temptation as if it is unexpected, but endure it all nobly as though it were happening in the natural course of life. And so speaking of this testing and suffering, I watched a movie last night that has been recommended to me for a while, and I just haven't gotten to it yet, and I finally did. I watched Father Stu, right? I know David has talked about it a couple times. Father Stu, if you've not watched it, deal with the language, but watch that movie. It's such a great movie. But Father Stu, this is based on a real man named Stuart Long, who was a boxer turned priest. He came to faith and and had a, a conversion moment. But there's a scene showing Stu's ordination to the priesthood toward the end of the movie. And at, at the time of his ordination, Stu was dying of a rare muscular disorder similar, similar to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. But it was a lot more aggressive and a lot more advanced. Stu died in 2014, I think, at the age of 50 from this disease. But in his remarks in the movie, Stu states this. He says, this life, no matter how long it lasts is a momentary affliction preparing us for eternal glory. At the time he says this, he can barely move his hands, and he's in a wheelchair. He's wheelchair-bound. But then he goes on and he says this, We shouldn't pray for an easy life, but rather the strength to endure a difficult one. Because the experience of suffering is the fullest expression of God's love, and it is a chance to be closer to Christ that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, Paul tells the Philippians.
So in these temptations, the devil directly attacks Jesus' sonship. And he directly attacks God's protection and God's provision and God's faithfulness. And he also directly attacks the proper object and person of our worship and our obedience. Here, the devil calls into question the sonship of Christ because in Christ we are all sons of God. And therefore, when our temptations arise and when trials and suffering and testing arises, the devil, the slanderer, the tempter, uses the exact same tactics and challenges our sonship in God through Christ. Jesus fasted to overcome temptation. And he teaches us through his fasting that the hunger of our flesh is not something that ought to control us. Rather, he controls his flesh in every way through fasting and through relying upon prayer and contemplating scripture, which is how he answers the devil in every one of his temptations. So when we fast and when we pray and as we contemplate and meditate on scripture, our flesh is also brought under the same spiritual control in order to meet and to be victorious over temptation as well as to endure the testing. And so the devil, through these temptations, offered Jesus a bloodless path to glory. And he also offered him the glory of the world without suffering. But as Jesus said no to the devil, he said yes to the path of the cross. And he silenced the devil by going to the cross and by atoning for our sin and by rising by dying and by rising in both power and in victory. And so now as we come to the table and we make great thanks for what Christ has done, let us reflect on how his victory is our victory and how his endurance empowers our own endurance through testing and through, through, through temptation as we journey with him in the wilderness of exile in our fallen world. Amen.